Amen. Hey, how about taking your Bible and open it up to Luke 15, Luke 15. I know God's got something good for us prepared this morning because last last night after Kelly took me to watch the Tennessee game, we had such a good time. And I came home and I got sick during the evening and was sick most of the evening. And when I came out like at five o'clock this morning to sit on Kelly's couch, I thought, dear goodness, if I don't get better soon, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And the Lord has progressively been healing me all throughout the morning. Couldn't jump as much as I could during worship. But I just know when the enemy starts messing, God's going to start blessing. So I believe God's got something good for us. This is one of the most uh, well-known, best-loved stories in the entire Bible, the story that I want to talk from. And if, if I had to describe the big idea that I want, to t- want you to take away, it would be this. It's going to come up on the screen. Whether you're lost, whether you've ran, or simply roamed, when you're tired of distance between you and the Father, you can come home. I just got to say it one more time. Whether you're lost, whether you've ran, or simply roamed, if you're tired of distance between you and the Father, you can come home. It's God's invitation for every person in this room. Story we're going to look at, Charles Dickinson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, they both called it the greatest short story ever written. It is inspired pieces of art by Rembrandt, inspired literature by a guy named Shakespeare. I'm talking about the story of the loving father and two sons in Luke 15. Contains one of the most beautiful tender pictures of the father in all the Bible. But before I tell you the story, let me set the story up because Jesus sets it up brilliantly in Luke 15. Look at verse number one. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Luke, the guy who wrote the gospel of Luke, uses, describes three categories of people that would often come out to hear Jesus teach. He begins with one side of the tracks. He says, first of all, there were tax collectors. This group was about as low as you could possibly go in terms of first century social and religious life. At this point, the nation of Israel lived under Roman occupation, and Rome sold tax franchises to unscrupulous people with the basic understanding that, hey, we want you to collect this much, but any that you collect above and beyond that is yours to keep. So tax collectors were unethical, corrupt Jewish people who had entered into a partnership with Rome to exploit their own people just to make a buck. Uh, They were in the same league as gangsters, regularly using strong-arm tactics to intimidate their own. Uh, they, They were some of the most hated and despised people on the planet, thinking IRS auditor. Now, maybe there's somebody in this room that works for the IRS. If you do, I'm so sorry. I know you got a job to do, but let's just be honest. Nobody looks forward to you showing up at their house. Nobody. First of all, there were tax collectors. Secondly, Luke says there were other notorious sinners. And this is just a catch-all phrase to describe people who ignored basically every moral law, every rule, every guideline. They lived as wild, as recklessly, as rebelliously 
closely as possible. We're talking about guys and girls who love to party. We're talking about prostitutes, criminals, drug dealers. We're also talking about people who just didn't live with a God consciousness about themselves. They weren't God-centered in their occupation with life. In other words, they didn't show up at synagogue regularly. They rarely, if ever, showed up at church. They rarely thought of God. They just lived for pleasure. But both of these groups, notice this, both the outcast and the tax collectors, they showed up to hear Jesus teach, which brings us to this next principle that will come up on the screen. It is an amazing aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus. People who were nothing like Jesus actually like Jesus. Can I tell you something, Watts Bar Church? When you're doing ministry right, you will be strangely compelling to people who are nothing like Jesus, and you will be strangely offensive to the religious crowd. So if you're offending the religious and you're attracting the irreligious, then you ought to know this. People who were nothing like Jesus actually like Jesus, and if they like you, maybe you're doing something. Right. First of all, there were tax collectors, other notorious sinners. Those are the first two groups. But there was a third group that showed up to hear Jesus teach. Look, if you would, at the next verse. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them a story. Third crowd that showed up was the religious crowd. And they didn't show up because they were interested in learning something from Jesus. They showed up because they wanted to complain. Have you ever met people like that? They showed up because they wanted to criticize. They showed up because they wanted to catch Jesus doing something that they didn't agree with. And by the way, their complaints, their complaints weren't private. Their complaints were rather public and loud. In fact, these people sat back like this and they said this. These people never come to our gatherings. Uh, Why are they all of a sudden showing up to hear Jesus teach? He must just be telling them what they want to hear. He's compromising. That's the secret. He's watering down the truth. That's the only reason this group of people show up to hear Jesus teach. These were the people who showed up to hear Jesus. Tax collectors, notorious sinners, and the religious. So Jesus decides to tell them not just a story. But he tells them three stories. And the genius of these stories is amazing. First of all, Jesus begins with a story about a shepherd and a lost sheep. And the punchline of this story appears in verse number seven. Check it out. In the same way, Jesus said, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who need no repentance. This is a story about joy, about something lost being found. Second story, it's a story about a woman and a valuable lost coin. And the punchline is in verse number 10. In the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels when just one sinner repents. Anybody notice a word that appears in both of those stories? It's the word, first of all, we'll talk about that word one, but it's the word joy. This is a story. These are stories about what gives the fire. Father's heart, great joy. And notice both of those stories follow a similar formula. Something's lost, it eventually gets found, it's completely restored, and then it's 
tremendously celebrated. Let's go again. Something gets lost. It eventually gets found. It's completely restored. And then it gets, uh, then it's celebrated. Guys and gals, this is God's heart for people that are lost. He goes looking for that which is lost. And when he finds it, he restores it. And not only that, he celebrates it. So the first thought is joy, but there's another word that gets repeated again and again in those two stories. It's the word one. I want you to notice something. Jesus isn't waiting. God's not waiting for 10,000 sinners to repent before he starts the party in heaven. He's not waiting for a thousand sinners to repent. He's not even waiting for a hundred or 10. God celebrates when just one person turns around, comes back to him, makes the long trek home. When that happens, God, all of heaven, everyone in heaven, they go about celebrating. Now, those are the first two stories, but there's a third story. A story about two sons, one father, and what it means to come home. Now, usually when we tell the third story, we call the story the parable of the prodigal son. But this isn't a story about one son. This is a story about two sons. Check out verse number 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them a story. A man had how many sons? Two. Two sons. One son is really rebellious. The other is really religious. One son is the rules breaker. The other son is the rules keeper. One son is one of those notorious sinners. The other son is an obnoxious, religious, self-righteous type. And this is a story about both sons. Both of these sons, get this, both of these sons broke the father's heart in their own unique ways. But neither of the sons is the main character in this story. The main character, the central character in this story is the dad. The central character is a loving father. At its core, this is a story about an amazing dad. This father sets the standard for what dads ought to look like and for what dads ought to be. This dad was loving, attentive. He was involved. He wasn't harsh, absent. He wasn't uninvolved. This dad was crazy about both of his kids. He was crazy about the rebellious kid, and he was crazy about the religious kid. He was crazy about the rules breaker, and he was crazy about the rules keeper. He was crazy about the kid who kept all the laws, and he was crazy about the one who made it his ambition in life to break every law. This is a story about a loving father. Now, it, it, it is important at this point to say, I know you bring up the subject of fathers, and immediately, people have an emotional response. I mean, for some of you, the word dad, father, it evokes positive emotions. You had a good dad. You had a good father. So when you think of the father in this story, it makes you feel all warm inside. And for others, I bring up the word dad, and it evokes a number of painful emotions. Maybe your dad was abusive. Last week, one of our team members, her name is Amy, and Amy shared the message last Sunday, and we've been teaching this parable for three weeks. 
And Amy chose to talk about the storyteller. And when she mentioned the thought of the father, she said, you know, father is very difficult for me to talk about because the story of my father is of a father who looked at me, publicly looked at her one day when she was only five years old. It's the first and only time she met him, saw her in a shopping mall, looked at this little girl and walked out, said, I want nothing to do with her again. That's the father wound she struggles with. So maybe you're here and you've got a father wound in you. I want to say this is not about a good dad. This story is not about a great dad. This story is a story about a dad. I want you to imagine the perfect father. I even want you to read the story of the father that gets revealed in this story and then imagine a father who is a thousand times, a million times, a billion times, a trillion times better and you can't even begin to a hint at the greatness of the father heart of our great God. This is a story about that kind of father. Finally, this is a story about what it means to come home. Now, let me tell you what home is. You know, what I love about being with my brother, spending time with any of my brothers, is when we're home, we're home. And here's what home is. Home is where you can be real and authentic about your heart, hurts, hang-ups, and know you still belong. And boy, that comes through in this story so real. I mean, the younger son is going to be real about his heart. He's going to reveal, Dad, I want out of here. And he knows I have the freedom. And when he comes home, he's going to be incredibly real with his father. And he knows he still belongs. And the older son, he's just as real. I mean, the older son, we won't even touch on it this morning, but the older son is going to go off on the father and say, I slaved all these years. You never gave me a goat. You never bought me a pizza. You never did anything for me. And this kid comes back and you throw a party. Both of these sons knew that they belong. Secondly, home. Home is where the person or people who know you best, they love you the most. Isn't that what it means to be home? That's what this story is about. Now, before we dive into the story, we're going to work through it really, really quickly. But you need to know this. It's something that Jesus assumed, but we gloss over because we don't have this mindset. You need to know this. You can bring up the next slide. First century Jewish culture was a culture dominated by a shame and honor paradigm. Here's what I mean. In the first century... It was your duty, obligation, ethical priority to live, behave, act in a way that brought honor to you and your family, while also avoiding any attitudes, actions, acts, decisions, behaviors that would bring shame to yourself or your family. Avoiding shame, pursuing honor, these were huge priorities in the first century. That's one of the things that makes this story unbelievable, because we read this story and we think, oh, this is a nice story about a father who loved beyond reason. You need to know that the audience that heard this story in the first century, they didn't have warm feelings about this story. In fact, this story offended every sensibility in them. So let's walk through it. You ready? Look at the next verse, verse 12. The younger son told his father 
I want my share of your estate now before you die. This is the intro to the younger son. Now, since my younger brother is in the room, let me just give you a picture of the younger son. As is often the case, the youngest son was the wild child. The youngest son was the free spirit. He was a party waiting to happen. He loved the spotlight. He craved attention. He wanted to be the groom at every wedding or the corpse at every funeral. He could be, ch- <laughs> he could be charming when he wanted to be, but he was more than just a little bit immature. He had a sense of entitlement about him. He was reckless. He was impulsive. And here's what the research reveals. The youngest child tends to be this way. Casey, did any of that connect at all with you? I'm not sure it did. At some point, even though the youngest son was raised in the home of a loving, prosperous dad, At some point, he made a decision that shattered the family. At some point, this youngest son said to himself, I got to blow this joint. I mean, my life would be a lot better if I were out from under the authority and leadership of my dad. Dad's rules, his values, his morality, his entire way of life, it's cramping my style. He's standing between me and liberty. I got to cut myself loose from this noose. I got to leave town. Now, here's what Kenneth Bailey says. Kenneth Bailey, he's a New Testament scholar, and he's written a lot about this. He indicates that for a son to say in the first century, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me when you die. In the first century, Bailey says this was an outrageous request. Remember, it was a culture dominated by what? Shame and honor. And it was the equivalent of wishing for the dad to die. And the usual response, Kenneth Bailey writes, would be this. The father would become angry. He would become filled with rage. He would smack the son in the head with like a pole or a stick or slap the son in the face. The son would immediately be expulsed from the home. He would be banished from that community. He could never come back. That's what's taking place. This son looks at his dad and said, Dad, best case scenario for me is for you to die. Because I want your stuff, but I don't really want you. I want you to think about that. I got three daughters, now three grandchildren. And for any of my daughters to ever say something even similar to that, It would crush me. And the Bible says the son goes to live in a distant country. He gets out of Dodge. I mean, this is the personification of shame. This son wants nothing to do with his father, nothing to do with his older brother, nothing to do with his family. He just wants out. And there was no precedent for this in first century Jewish culture. Notice how the father responds. It's even more frustrating to the audience hearing this story. I mean, the father didn't beat the son. The father doesn't banish the son. Instead, the father actually takes his inheritance, which was largely bound up in land. He liquidates the assets, and he gives the youngest son one-third of all of those assets because the older son would get two-thirds. This shocked and bewildered everybody in the audience. They thought to themselves, this father isn't being honorable. I mean, this son is being shameful. 
The father ought to heap shame upon the son. Instead, the father, in a way, is taking upon himself the shame of the son and giving honor to the son that deserves nothing but dishonor. You know, it's really interesting, the word when it says he divided his wealth. That word wealth there is bios. Anybody familiar with that word? We get our English word, what life, from that word. And when it says he divided his wealth, you know what it's saying? It's saying the father literally tore apart his life. He tore apart his life. He did something that he knew would cause the son ultimate pain. And he knew in that moment it was causing him more pain than his son could ever imagine. Look at verse 13. A few days later, the youngest son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. The son son took action immediately. Why? Because sin is always in a hurry. And it's in a hurry because it's based upon a lie. And it knows if it gets clarity and perspective on the issue, it will likely do an about face. So the son left Dodge immediately. He went to a distant land, which likely means this. He went to a far country. He went to Gentile territory. This kid defied his dad. He shirked his responsibilities. He walked out on grace. He moved to the big city, bought the luxury condo, furnished it with the latest in appliances and furniture. He got the new sports car, sported a new wardrobe. He binged on tech and on toys. He purchased rounds of drinks for everybody at the nightclub on a regular basis. He surrounded himself with people who would cater to every lust, people who lived and partied just as hard, fast, furious as possible. And verse 13 says he wasted or squandered everything. In other words, he burned through a huge pile of cash in record time. And verse 14 is the reckoning. About that time, his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to start. This is the equivalent of an economic downturn. I mean, gas prices, they go up, up, up. Inflation soars. Unemployment rates rise. Investments tank. A financial crisis hits. When it says a great famine, people in that culture, they would know. What happens? Because we have reports, first century reports, of what would happen during periods of great famine. There would be murder. There would be rioting. Children would be sold into sex trafficking on a regular basis. A great famine. And the younger son begins to be in need. He has to sell the Xbox to buy groceries. He pawns the big screen television. Eventually, they, they repossess the car and the condo. He even has to ditch all of his wardrobe, take it down to Plato's closet, at least that's what it's called in Birmingham, to sell it for cash just to buy groceries. He can't find a job because he's lived so recklessly and wild. He really doesn't have a portfolio that makes him a viable commodity for any employer out there seeking somebody to work for them. He's so strung out, he begins to lose weight. He shaves his head to avoid the lice that you regularly pick up when you stay at the local shelter. All those long locks are gone. And he becomes an emaciated shell of himself. Look at verse 15. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. Some translation says he attached himself to a local farmer. 
The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. In other words, he even failed at being a beggar. In the Middle East, a polite way to get rid of someone you didn't want hanging out would be to assign them a job you knew they wouldn't accept. And when this wealthy landowner looked at a Jewish boy and thought, how do I get rid of this kid? He thought, I know, I'll I'll ask him to feed the pigs, which no respectable Jewish boy would do because they viewed pigs as being unclean animals. But this kid has sunk so low that he goes there to feed the pigs. And then one day, verse 17, he finally came to, to his senses. He had this realization. Is it a realization that you've ever had? I know I've had it so many times in my life. I've had it when when I went off on my wife in a way that was beneath her dignity and mine. I felt this way when I went off on my children, powered up on them because I'm big and you're little. I've felt this way when I've done the same thing with church people. There's this thought when you come to the end of yourself that will often come. And I think, it's, I think it's an indication that we were all made for eternity. And it's this thought, I'm better than what I've become. I'm better than what I've become. That's what happens to this kid that's feeding pigs. I'm better than what I've become. Verse 18. Oh, it's going to come up on the screen. Verse 18. And when it does, I want us to say these words. The first words that are underlined, just say them out loud and together with me. I will go home to my father. You got to say it one more time. I will go home to my father. Now listen to his speech and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Now, this is really interesting that he says, take me on as a hired servant. Because servants, just servants, occupied a distinguished position in a first century wealthy person's home. Servants actually became part of the family. If you were a servant... The head of the home took responsibility for caring for you, for caring for your wife, for caring for all of your children. That was the role of a servant. But he doesn't say, take me on as a servant. He says, take me on as a what? A hired servant. This is the equivalent of a day laborer. Do you have them in what's bar? We have them in Birmingham. There are places that you can go in Birmingham if you just need a person to work for a day. Often various ethnicities come out to these places and they just stand there waiting for someone to hire them, cash under the table for a day. A day laborer. Day laborer had no rights. A day laborer wasn't part of the family. The owner of the home didn't take responsibility for feeding the day laborers. But notice this. This is amazing. When the son thinks about going home, he thinks, I'll go to my father. Because even my father's day 
laborers. Kelly, this tells me something about this father. This father is extravagantly generous. Not only does he feed those he's responsible to feed, but when day laborers show up, he's the kind of gracious father that says, what? Come on, sit at my table. You're welcome here. You belong here. That's what this son thinks of. He says, I'll go home because even the day laborers have it better, and I'll repent. I'll get things right. I'll repent vertically to you, God. I've blown it with you. I'll repent horizontally to my dad. Dad, I blew it with you. I mean, this son has the essence of repentance down. He's turning around. He's going back. And finally, he makes his way back. Verse 20, look at it. He returned home to his father. And while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him coming. Feel with love and compassion. He ran to his son embraced him and kissed him. I love that phrase that says, while he was a long ways off. You know what that means, don't you? It means that ever since the son sat out on his own, that father has been sitting, standing, waiting on either the front porch or in the field, looking down that road, waiting for the son to come. He was looking for the son to come. And when he saw him, he ran to his son. I love this. You need to know this about first century Jewish culture. In the first century, wealthy, noble men did not run. Grown men never ran. It wasn't a sign of dignity. It wasn't a sign of honor. Servants ran. Children ran. Women ran. But grown men didn't run because if you ran, you were wearing a robe. You had to hike up the skirt just a little bit. People could see your legs. They might see your undergarments. They might see something else, which meant more shame for that noble man. Even the Greek philosopher Aristotle said this, Great men never run. Running is something children do, servants do, people who are eager, afraid, or upset do. Not noble men, but this father, when he saw his son, he ran to meet him. And you need to know this. When it says he ran, it means run as though in a sprint. In other words, he didn't jog. He ran to meet his friend. Why did he run? That's the question I've got, right? Why did Why did the father run? Well, in that era, if a Jewish boy squandered the family estate among Gentiles, which was probably what that phrase distant country means, if he tried to come home, the entire community would gather upon his return and as a symbol of how destructive his decision had been, how he had broken his relationship with the community, how he had broken his relationship with the family, how he had broken his father's heart, the entire family would gather around. They would take a clay pot that was supposed to symbolize that person's life. They would break it into hundreds of pieces. And this was a way of them saying something like this. This is the kind of brokenness you've caused. This is the kind of mess you've made. You've broken everything that was good. You've broken trust with this community. You've broken trust with your family. You've broken trust with your father. The damage that you've caused is beyond repair. Let these broken pieces represent your broken life. You are not whole. You are not welcome. You are not family. You are cut off. And the phrase was kazaza, which means the cutting off. They would pronounce kazaza over that child. 
I'll tell you why I believe the father ran. I believe the father took off running because when he saw his son, he thought, I've got to get to my son before anybody else in this community gets to my boy. Because if somebody else in this community gets to him, they might announce Kazaza. That might break his heart. I might lose him forever. I want the first words my son hears to be words of grace, words of love, words of mercy, words of acceptance, words that let him know you are welcome back home. I'm going to make a beeline to my son. I've got to get there before anybody else does. And can I tell you something? That's a picture of God's heart for you. When you start running to God, God goes running to you and he wants to get to you so that he can shower you with his grace, shower you with his love, shower you with his forgiveness, let you know how much you belong. Now, I want you to place yourself in the position of that son. That son is haggard. I mean, he's emaciated. He's a shell of himself. And he's walking down that road, maybe dragging himself down that road. And he looks up and he sees the father running. He's never seen his dad run. Remember, noble men didn't run. And he sees his father running. And I think initially, he can't make out, he can't make out the father's gestures on his face. He can't see what the father looks like. I think immediately the son thinks, oh my gosh, this is either going to be really, really good or it's going to be really bad. I mean, he's running. I've never seen him run. And then all of a sudden the father gets closer and he sees that the father is smiling. And then he hears what the father is saying. And the father is saying with his arms outstretched, welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. I've been waiting for you ever since the day you left. Welcome home. You need to know, this is not the parable of the prodigal son, guys and gals. This is the parable. This is the story of the running father, the father who the moment we turn towards him, he runs to meet us where we are and embrace us and forgive us. Do you notice what it says? He embraced him and he kissed him. It it reads about the same in any translation, embrace. That means hug. But... The phrase kiss is, is sort of light because you think, oh, it's a polite kiss on the cheek. No, 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 no. It means to kiss again and again and again and again and again and again, again. In other words, when the father finally gets there, the son is covered in pig feces. The son stinks. The son has an odor. And yet when the father gets there, he wraps that boy in his arm. That boy's head crushes that daddy's chest. And the father just begins to kiss that boy's head over and over. I can see him just kissing that boy's head. Then the father works his way down. He's kissing the boy's cheeks. And then he he wants to see his boy's hands. And he takes those hands and he kisses those hands that are so dirty. And the son begins his speech. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. It's really interesting. At this stage, he doesn't mention the hired servant part that he had rehearsed back in 17. And some people... Some people say, why doesn't he mention the hired servant? And these theologians say, well, it's because the father cut him off. You could surmise that. I don't think that's so. I think because the moment he's covered in that kind of grace, he 
he's hit with this reality. Any attempt to square myself with a loving father through my own actions and works, that would be an insult to grace. I'm just going to tell him I'm not worthy. And I'm going to fall. I'm going to crash into grace and see if grace can hold the weight of the crash. And grace is able to hold the weight of the crash. But his father said, let's finish this up. Quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And the party began. Did you notice something? The father didn't lecture the son at this point. The father didn't look at the son and say, Now, I hope you've learned your lesson. Instead, bring the finest robe in the house. You know what the robe was? It was a symbol of identity. The best robe, the finest robe, was the father's robe. It was a robe that was saved for special, significant occasions like this. And this father looks around at servants and says, I want you to go get my robe. I want you to get my robe. I want you to put it over my son's shame. I want you to put my robe over his poverty. I want you to put my robe over his lack. I want my son to know that he's not a stepchild. He's not a servant. He's certainly not a day laborer. He is a son. He restores his identity. Then notice the next part. Get a ring for his finger. The ring was a symbol of authority. The ring was the father's signet ring. In that culture... It was a way of transacting business. It was sort of like a credit card. The father basically says, hey, hey, go get the notary right now. I want my son's name back on all the family's legal documents. We got to add him back to the bank account. We got to add him to the checking account. We got to make certain he has the gold American Express card. I mean, make sure we apply for that right now. I want him to not go without. His authority is restored. My son will not be a pomper. My son is an and I'm not going to put him on the probation program. I'm restoring his inheritance right now. Is this good news or what? Get sandals for his feet. The sandals were a symbol of dignity. Slaves went barefoot in those days. This father looks at his son who's apparently barefoot at this point. Become a slave and says, oh no. My son will not live as a slave. I've got to make sure he's got shoes. Put shoes on his feet. And then finally, kill the fattened calf. we got to celebrate with a feast. And the feast, the feast was a symbol of the father's heart and the father's joy. You know, fattened calf in that age could feed about 200 people. Who showed up at the party? The whole community showed up. Because the father wanted to demonstrate what grace looks like in a community. He wanted everybody to know, this is the way you're going to interact with my son. You won't bring up his past. You won't bring up his issues. You won't bring up the way he broke my heart. Because you don't hear me bringing that up. And if I can forgive, all of you can forgive. Grace is going to set the table in this family. So bring the whole community out so that they'll know that the father's house is able to provide for everyone. And the party began. Whether you lost, whether you ran, whether you've simply roamed, when you're tired of the distance between you and the Father, you can come home. Uh, 
One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Brennan Manning. Now, let me tell you about Brennan. Brennan, he finished high school, enlisted immediately in the Marines, fought in the Korean War, came out of the Marines, was ordained as a Franciscan priest, Catholic priest, blew it because he became a raving alcoholic as a priest. Ended up on the streets of Fort Lauderdale as a homeless drunk. He says he recalls being there on the streets of Fort Lauderdale, Florida one day, hovering when a little kid walked up to him immediately to be snatched by the mother. The mother snatched her kid as the kid was looking at Brennan Manning, who had become a shell of a man in his bout with alcoholism. And the mother said to her child, don't look at that trash. Don't look at that trash. Brennan Manning went on to become quite the evangelist for grace. Now, he would struggle with alcoholism almost till he died. But he would keep talking about the relentless grace of God. In one of the most famous sermons he ever preached, Brennan Manning shared this. You watch the documentary of uh, Rich Mullen's life. These words appear at the beginning of that documentary. Brennan Manning, in the 33 years since I was first ambushed by Jesus, I'm now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus will ask one question and only one question. What do you think that question is? Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? And that I longed to hear the sound of your voice? And the real believers will respond, Brennan says, and say, I believed in your love and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are so faithful... We'll have to respond, well, frankly, no, sir. I never really believed it. And there's the real difference between the real believers and the nominal Christians around in our churches. No one can measure like a believer the depth and intensity of God's love. But then again, no one can measure like a believer the effectiveness of our gloom, our pessimism, our low self-esteem, our self-hatred and despair that block God's love from us. Do you see now why it's so important to lay hold of this basic truth of our faith? Because you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. Manning ends with these words. I have a word for you. I have a word for you. These are the words of God. I know your life story. I know the skeletons in your closet. I know every moment of sin and shame, dishonesty and degraded love that darkens your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. And my word for you is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be. That's God's invitation this morning. Let me pray with you. And team, come on up. you believe that I love you? That's the Father's words to you. If so, you can come home. Maybe you're the older brother 
I resonate so much with that older brother, and that's not a statement of pride. It's a statement that brings me great depths of despair because I've been religious, self-righteous, arrogant, and prideful. Maybe you relate to the older brother, and the father goes out on the porch, and he begs him to come on home. Or maybe you're that younger son, and you need to come home. Right now, why not make a decision? I want to encourage everybody in this room to pray this prayer with me. Just say out loud, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? And let him speak. Maybe he's saying, do you believe I love you? Maybe he's saying, are you ready to come home? You can come home right now with a simple prayer. Say this out loud, but not alone. Faith family at Watts Bar, say this with me. Just say, Heavenly Father, thank you for your heart for me, that you rejoice when one sinner repents and turns back to you. Today, I'm turning back to you with my whole heart. I'm turning back to you. Thank you that you're ready to welcome me home as your child. I say out loud, Jesus is my Lord. I believe that God raised him from the dead and that today he's forgiven my sin and he will lead my life. I trust Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you made a decision to come home while eyes are closed, nobody's looking around in this building but me. Nobody's going to embarrass you. But if you made a decision to come home, would you lift up your hand right where you are? Lift it up if you made a decision to come back to Jesus today. Yeah, I see that hand. Somebody else, lift up yours. Anybody? Yeah, I see that one. Somebody else, lift. Yes, I see that one. Are there others? Lift up your hands. Lift them up. Go ahead, lift it up. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. Everybody put down your hands. And everybody look this way. I I don't want you to miss this. But the Bible says heaven rejoices over one person who repents. I think I counted three this morning. I could have missed somebody. But, hey. Come on, you can do better than that. Lift it up to Jesus. ask everybody in the room to stand. Everybody stand up. They're going to lead us in that song again. Pastor Kelly will come up, close us out today, but let's sing it like we know that we can come home. And then if you want prayer or anything, Kelly will tell you more about that.